Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glaskell, Senior Director of Public Finance at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. We're brought to you in partnership with the Penn Institute for Urban Research, and also through a generous grant from the Century Foundation. I'm here today with our co-host, Susan Wachter. Hello, Susan. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you all are. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks a lot, Susan. And by the way, in addition to her role as co-director of Penn IUR and co-host today, Susan is also a Wharton real estate professor. And that is especially important today because the subject at hand for this special briefing is working from home. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic may be fading, God willing, but we're still working from home at least part of the time. The Castle Back to Work barometer shows that offices in big cities are only about 40% full. And while that's back to where we were before the Omicron wave in January, we still have a long way to go before full occupancy. And that occupancy gap, it may signal a long-term change in how many folks work. And in turn, that may signal trouble for office building values. Remember I said, hold that thought about real estate. Trouble for office building values, which means maybe fiscal threats to New York, Philly, Atlanta, San Francisco, Austin, other cities whose budgets depend very heavily on commercial property taxes. And that's not to mention all the sales tax revenue from the lunches, $4 lattes, after-hours drinks, and all the other things that office workers tend to buy, or at least were buying before COVID-19 changed the economy and changed how we behave. Now, we may not have all of the answers to this great conundrum today, but we sure have a heck of a great panel of thinkers on this subject. From WFH Research at Stanford and ETAM, the Tech Institute in Mexico City, please welcome Jose Barrero. From closer to home at Hunter College and the CUNY Graduate Center, we have city finance expert Howard Chernick. From Washington, where 200,000 federal employees were coming to their offices every day before COVID, we have reporter Ali Schweitzer from Public Radio's WAMU, and finally, our very special guest, former DC mayor and CFO, Tony Williams, who now serves as the CEO of the Federal City Council. And Tony has some cool ideas about turning empty offices into housing to help keep Washington healthy, afloat, and busy. And now to get things rolling, let's bring on Jose Barrero. You and your partners published a monthly work-from-home survey. So tell us about what's in the latest one and your other findings as well. Yeah, so thanks very much for having me. Very happy to talk to you a little bit about our research on working from home. So basically at the very beginning of the pandemic with my co-authors Nick Bloom at Stanford University and Steve Davis at the University of Chicago, we began running a monthly survey of U.S. residents who are closely attached to the labor force. So we're looking at people between ages 20 and 64 and, and who earned at least $10,000 in 2019. And we basically wanted to track how much people were working from home, but more so kind of the long-term view on working from home that they and their employers were having. And kind of the gist is, so lots of working from home during the pandemic. So back in May 2020, when there were still a lot of lockdowns around the country, over 60% of full paid working days were being done from home. This is 12 times as much as we estimate was the case in 2017 and 2018 using data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And since then it has slid down. So for most of 2021, about 40 to 45% of full paid working days in our data were days that were worked from home. But kind of, I think the more interesting finding that we get from our data is that 
is that people say that their employer is planning for them to continue working from home after the pandemic in large amounts as well. As of the, the most recent survey that we have in February of 2022, something like 27% of full paid working days, so this is nearly one and a half days a week is gonna be the average amount of working from home for the entire people in our sample. But it's actually much higher for people who say that they have worked from home during the pandemic. For that population, so, so basically for people in knowledge jobs who have been doing it over the past two years, it's more like a little bit over two days a week on average. So this suggests that the kind of the typical, at least knowledge worker in the US economy is gonna continue in, in what is a very much a hybrid mode after the pandemic. And again, kind of just to give you a comparison that we were looking at a very small fraction of full paid working days, maybe one twentieth of all paid working days being done from home before the pandemic. But kind of more interestingly is these projections for the amount of working from home that we are going to see after the pandemic have been trending up, especially since the start of 2021. I think we were all a little bit shell-shocked in 2020, but in 2021 is as kind of a, People started getting more used to working from home, investing in home offices that make it better and, and so on and so forth and realizing that it could work. We actually see kind of the, a positive slide in these working from home numbers for after the pandemic. Every survey, fewer people were telling us that their employer had not given them any plans for working from home. And, and so actually many of those, of, of those people who kind of, we infer that many of those people who used to say that my employer has not given me any plans are actually now saying that they're going to allow them to do so one or two days a week. And actually kind of among the people who were saying, yeah, my employer wants me to work from home. We also find that during 2021, they were increasingly saying that they were planning on doing so more days a week. I guess partly that might have been because the, the pandemic has dragged on for, I'd say, far longer than any of us thought, especially after the advent of vaccination about a year ago, kind of the arrival of the Delta and Omicron variants, kind of that has extended this period of time where we've been working from home and people have gone even more used to it. So some of the keys of our research is, are in thinking about why this has happened. Why have we seen, I mean, not just a persistent shift to working from home, as it looks like, but kind of why has it grown over time, the amount that, that people say that they're going to work from home after the pandemic. So let me say a little bit about that, because in our survey data, I mean, not only are we asking people kind of these mechanical questions, how much are you working from home? How much would you like to work from home? But also we've asked them basically about potential mechanisms for why the shift is going on. So one of the key economic mechanisms that, that we've uncovered is that basically the pandemic acted like a mass experiment, right? So overnight in 2020, everybody sort of woke up one day and we were forced to try working from home altogether. This was an extremely unique situation because even though kind of the technologies for, that allow working from home existed in 2019, Zoom was existed, kind of high-speed broadband internet existed, for example, it was very hard for individual companies to try this out, and in particular to try this out unilaterally. And similarly for units within companies to try this out unilaterally. We had never explored with how this technology can actually work and whether it was feasible for working from home to work. So this is what the pandemic did. It forced kind of society to experiment, experiment altogether. And these gains from experiment or kind of what we learned from this experimentation was a lot more useful given the fact that everybody else was doing it at the same time. And actually in our survey data, we find exactly this. We find that people kind of constantly report that they were positively surprised by how working from home worked after they tried it during the pandemic. So a, a large majority of people say that and, and they've continued saying that throughout the pandemic. The other thing that I think is, is particularly interesting is workers report investing a good amount in physical capital, so in things like a nice new desk chair for home and monitors and webcams, but also in terms of human capital, they've invested into learning how working from home works. These investments are actually making working from home more productive and they're, they're enabling it for the future. Maybe uh, one last thing that, that I'll say is that We've also been asking people basically how efficient are they while working from home during the pandemic relative to working on business practices. And there's a bunch of people who say that, that they're about equally efficient in both places. But on balance, more people, something like over 40% of respondents who have worked from home during the pandemic, say that they're more efficient 
while working from home, well, a much smaller number say that they're less efficient. And what's more striking to me is that kind of the implied relative efficiency of working from home has improved as the pandemic has dragged on. So basically, as we've done it more, we've gotten more accustomed to it. We've learned how to make it more efficient and make it better. So these are all kind of mechanisms that show us that the forced experiments that the pandemic imposed on us has taught us how well it works, has pushed us to making working from home better. And at the end of the day, basically, employees have learned and, and their companies as well that working from home can work and that basically trying to get back to a full-time and in-person work and towards the end of 2022 or whenever the pandemic truly fades is just something that we don't need. And that basically employees can call their employer's bluff when they say that they need to come back to the office full time, because in reality, kind of we've shown that, that this is not necessary. And so these are all reasons why we expect working from home to stick at, at something like five or 10 times the amount that we used to see before the pandemic. Well, thanks very much, Jose. Come back in a year. We'll revisit the topic. We'll see who's right and who's righter. In the meantime, before we turn to Howard Chernick, just want to remind you, number one, this is special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. Number two, Jose comes from, among other things, WFH Research. Just Google that. You will find a ton of really interesting stats, a monthly survey and whatnot. It's a very cool website. So with that, let's go to Howard Chernick. Howard's looking at the fiscal implications of working from home for, for big cities. Uh, he's done some great work on that. And also looking at how some cities may be doing workarounds, coming up with alternatives, kind of the new, new, new economy post-COVID. So Howard, it's all yours. Thank you, Bill, and thanks very much for inviting me to participate. The work I'm gonna discuss is uh, done completely jointly or more so with uh, David Merriman and David Copeland to David, so I wanna thank them. We set about to say, what would be the fiscal impacts of uh, increase in work from home? And of course, no one knows exactly how much that will last. So we did estimated upper and lower bounds. The overall impact on cities is depends on how much they were hit by the COVID recession and how vulnerable they are to work from home. In general, the COVID recession hit bigger cities more than smaller cities. The biggest hits from the recession itself, at least through the middle of 2021, were New Orleans, New York, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, San Francisco. Smallest hits were smaller cities. Springfield, Mass., for example, Bakersfield, California, Fresco, California, and Knoxville. So already you see some possibilities of shifting of economic activity away from big cities to smaller cities. The second part of the puzzle is to what extent are cities vulnerable to this sea change in work patterns? And our answer, based on the literature and thinking about it, is that it depends on the kind of industrial makeup of the city. And by industrial, we don't mean smokestacks, but we mean which types of industries are most important. And the key industries for to determine this impact, there are four of them, finance, information, professional and technical, and management. And the reason big cities are so vulnerable to a change in work from home is that those industries are, A, very important in the biggest cities. New York is the extreme with 61% of all employment weighted by wages in those sectors, particularly finance, and how many people in those sectors can work from home. And here the estimates are that it's a lot of people cannot work from home. But in those key industries, the possibility of working from home without uh, deleterious productivity effects are very great. And that's, what, that's a little bit what the literature is suggesting for now. So turning to the fiscal impacts, the reason this is important for cities is that a hit to the demand for commercial and industrial real estate will lower the value of these assets because they're in pretty fixed supply. And that part of the property tax base is very important. So in our study of eight cities, 
which includes New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Miami, Atlanta, Austin, and Charlotte, and our initial study, Charlotte, North Carolina, the commercial industrial base makes up about 37% of the property tax base, with a range from 25% all the way to 56% in Atlanta. Okay, and that's already a flag. The vulnerability of that part of the real estate base, the property base, is that 41% of jobs weighted by wages could be, in our estimate, or by, from the literature estimate, performed from home. That translates into a demand for space, even with a strong recovery that we're observing of 12 to 25%. And that demand for space, that drop, translates into a same magnitude of drop in the value of buildings. Just to put it in perspective, that means that cities would need a about a 12 or more percent increase in employment in those industries just to offset the decline in the demand for space in terms of the effect on building value. So what is the going to be the impact on the property tax? So we have one sector that is at risk. The bigger sector, about 63%, at least in our cities, and it's about the same for the national average, is residential property. And a seat of the pants estimation, or using our data, is that you would need a 10% rise in residential property, that's both owner-occupied and renter property, to offset that decline in the base in order to leave the property tax intact but cities need to be able to tax that base. The overall revenue effects of this set of this change are biggest in Atlanta and smallest in, for example, in, in Austin. Now, why Atlanta? Atlanta is has an enormous amount of commercial industrial property relative to residential, because it's very decentralized, the metro area. B, it's very dependent on the property tax. And that means that any hit to the commercial sector means a big hit to Atlanta. If you compare Austin, which is a booming city, we read in the papers every day, the revenue hit that we uh, project is about the same as the revenue hit to New York and San Francisco. Why? Because Austin is very dependent. Over 50% of its, all its revenues come from the property tax. The policy solutions are very difficult here, and we talk about revenue diversification as a, a strategy. One might say, in quotes, New York City was saved by the fact that it has a very, as a local income tax that has performed very robustly. There are many policy questions involved here. If you work remotely now, can the city tax you? To what extent? These will be decided by the courts with very important fiscal implications for cities. With that, I'll stop. But thank you very much. And we look forward to questions and further discussion. Well, thanks, Howard. We're going to come back to a lot of these issues in the Q&A. We have plenty of time and a ton of audience questions. You are listening and watching Special Briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR, available on both of our websites. Let's not waste any time in this busy day. I'm going to hand off to my co-host, Susan Wachter from Penn IUR, to introduce our next panelist. Thank you very much, Bill. And thank you to our two panelists so far. You have really set the stage extremely well for our conversation and understanding of these trends, short run and long run going forward. So the next two panelists, the first is Ali Schweitzer. Both are going to give us some on the ground, what does it look like and what are the options going forward from policy perspectives? Ali, you have been tracking this for Washington, DC. Give us your sense of where things are now and where they're likely to go from what you're seeing on the ground. Sure. So I have been focused particularly on the impact of federal telework on the district's economy. And I looked at the federal government largely because the federal government is D.C.'s single largest employer. It also owns or leases about a quarter of the city's office space. So it's a big player downtown, but also citywide. What I looked at was basically just the rate at which federal workers started to telework during the pandemic. And prior to pandemic, it was about 3%, according to a national survey, a federal employee survey. During the pandemic, 
it rose to about 59% of federal employees nationwide were working from home. So as you can imagine, that was a really huge impact. And that had a direct impact on just the liveliness of downtown DC. So around 200,000 federal employees prior to the pandemic commuted downtown every day. Some of those people lived in DC, some did not. So, and that contributes overall. If we can assume that every federal worker spends in the neighborhood of $20 a day when they're downtown, they're contributing between 60 and $100 million of sales tax revenue annually. I wanna note the property tax revenue piece of this is a little bit different for DC because the feds of course don't pay property taxes on their holdings to the districts, unless it's lease space, but anything that they own is not already generating property tax for the city. So the big thing that we're looking at in DC when it comes to the feds is their sales tax impact. And it's big. It's like I said, 60 to 100 million estimated every year just in that sales tax revenue. We don't have current data on how many federal workers are reporting back to the office now. We just have a sort of a rough sense that we do know that the, the office workers are back in DC at a rate of about 29% of their pre-pandemic levels last summer. So that's workforce-wide, that's all real estate, not just Fed. So that's big, that's a really big difference. What DC is doing now, particularly with respect to the federal workforce, is DC has essentially been trying to lobby the federal government to bring people back. I think that the results from that have been pretty mixed. I don't, I don't think that the federal government is necessarily that responsive to the economic development needs of the district in that sense. Like, I think because all I've heard from one of the largest federal employee unions, AFGI, because they're actively negotiating return to work with their bargaining unit members, is that agencies are just doing their own thing. It's really up to the agency and it really depends on the office. Everybody has a different plan, regardless of Biden's COVID-19 preparedness plan where he said people need to come back, we're having more federal workers come back. It's still an open question for the vast majority of staff level workers in the federal government. So we don't know you know, how many of them are actually gonna come back permanently. So that's a big concern for the city. So what the city is doing in addition to lobbying the federal government to come back, because they're thinking of basically how they can reinvent downtown DC and come up with other revenue streams. One thing that the city has been looking at is what to do about housing downtown, because currently the central business district in the district is 92% commercial. You know, they don't have really that much residential currently. And as we know, you know, housing conversions for commercial can be really complicated and really expensive because you think about how office buildings are built versus residential. It's a difficult sort of way. You have to think about all that windowless space, for example, in the core of office buildings. No one really wants to live in a windowless space like that. So, so those kinds of expenses are intimidating, I think, for commercial property owners. So the district is looking at how it can incentivize it, make it a little bit easier for property owners to convert. So right now, it's really quite expensive and not a very appealing option. You also have to think about from the perspective of a landlord. If you have residential tenants in a building, you might have, say, 300 residential tenants and that's just a lot more wear and tear on the building. That's 300 leases to deal with as opposed to 10 leases maybe for commercial. So it's a big ask, I think, of the property owners in downtown D.C. But they're looking at that and they're also thinking about what to do, how to kind of reimagine downtown as a place where people actually want to just hang out and not just go to work. So a number of business improvement districts downtown have gotten together and they're putting, they're working on an ad campaign, essentially a marketing campaign to kind of draw people back to downtown. And what's interesting is that the company that the bids, the business improvement districts hired to do this ad campaign did a survey before they were putting together some ideas of what all workers downtown missed about downtown. Surprise, surprise, no one said work. <laughs> no, no one said going back to the office sounds great. What people were really missing was just sort of the experience of being out with their coworkers after work or going to you know happy hour afterward or going to shows downtown, going to see sporting events. So DC, I think the bids are going to focus on how to market the downtown area as, as a place where you want to hang out, an entertainment hub, and not just a place where you clock into the office. So, but these are all very much in flux right now. We don't know what's going to happen. We do know that large office buildings in the district saw a decrease in their value, their assessments about 10% from pre-pandemic to 2021. So we're looking very much at budget impacts going forward in the district. We just don't really know exactly what they're going to look like long term. Thank you so much, Allie. Let's turn to Mayor Tony Williams. Mayor, you were mayor at a time of significant change in the city, and you were a transformative mayor. And the city came back, came back extremely strongly. What's going to be necessary going forward? What are the questions that are out there, and what are the big picture 
implications for cities, and particularly Washington, D.C. Let me just begin with uh, the impact of COVID. To me, the impact of COVID on the worker is analogous to uh, Walmart. There is a negotiation between the worker and the employer. The worker wants more. The employer's obviously got an economic model where they're going to have to sit down and talk because they're at odds. You know, hello. And uh, Walmart came along and reduced prices uh, for uh, workers. And for a long time, it kind of really suppressed or diverted or whatever word you want to use, a whole labor movement. And that whole dialogue changed for years and years and years until recently people woke up and said, hey, you know what? The worker is a much worse position than he or she was 20, 30 years ago when Walmart and all this lower cost shopping has really masked this inequality. So this negotiation between the worker and the employer around child care, around family leave, all these issues, you know, I would argue one thing we had to watch out for is, and I'm not a labor economist, but I'm, I'm on the microphone so I can talk, is whether this is going to mask real problems with the workforce. Okay, so yay, I can work from home, but you know, I still got to take care of my children. I still have family leave issues. You know, to what extent is this masking this? Which is another way of saying, how's telecommuting going to play out in the short, medium, long run in the worker-employer uh, relationship? And the other thing in my mind is that we have to really look at is, and it relates to inequality is, it's one thing if I can buy a home office and, you know, work from my home office. What if I'm a lower, low mod income worker who can't afford to equip my home office and I'm sitting right in the kitchen with everybody else in the family doing my home office? I mean, I think there are issues like that that are, you know, going to have to play out and we have to see how they're going to go. And then lastly, and it wasn't really covered here, and I'm not really, I think the work that's been done here is beautiful, is how are companies competing? And the culture of companies driving the ability of companies to compete, how is telecommuting going to play out in that? I don't know. We don't know. I know that we're dealing with some audit firms. They've declared that they want all their workers to work from home, but then they're saying it's going to take more time to do the audit because everybody's working from home. Well, who's going to pay for that? Okay, so there are all those issues. I think Ali did a fantastic job talking about the impact of DC. All I would add is that, you know, it really, for cities that have fallbacks like New York or have fallbacks like Washington, D.C., we have, we're a state, so we have the state sales tax. Yes, this is hitting our sales tax, and we got other areas of sales tax to the extent tourism and hospitality comes back elsewhere that can help buffer that. We also have an income tax, and right now, the income tax is performing very, very well. Now, as the stock market takes a dip, right, and performs below previous levels, that can have a huge impact on a DC. And we don't play our cards right and we don't remain or try to be a competitive city. And these higher income earners leave, that's a big problem, needless to say. And I think that could happen. I think what I try to tell people in the neighborhoods is you get the commercial property tax, you get the sales tax, your high earners start leaving because you're starting to hit them. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to residential and that's your schools. So you have to pay attention to this. You know, the work that I've seen done on uh, conversions, and I agree with Ali, nobody wants to live in the middle of a concrete core, but the uh, work that I've seen done on incentivizing conversions is that in a city like DC, it does pencil out. The city can, in a comfortable way, in a responsible way, incentivize these conversions. But what's economically feasible isn't always politically defensible. So in a lot of blue cities like Washington, D.C., San Francisco, other cities, if you want to start rethinking buildings, rethinking blocks, and this takes public subsidy, you're in for some heavy lifting and heavy weather, and you have to be prepared for that. Thank you. And may I just follow up on what you were just saying? You were saying that it does pencil out, but... Are you saying with a subsidy it pencils out to convert the office buildings to residential? Is that the thrust of your of your remarks at the end? Because I was encouraged to hear, and you're on the ground, you are looking at these data, that conversions can work, but do they require city subsidies? The conversions work in some or cases tear down these old buildings. Owners owners but they they don't work without the subsidies. I don't I think Ali's right there. Yeah. And then it gets to the political question and also the tax question, which brings us 
to the bigger issue, which I'd like to throw out there for everyone. And perhaps we could start with Jose to see whether there's any detailed data in your surveys that might respond to this. We had Goldman Sachs come out and say, everyone back to the office. Why? Because we have an apprenticeship model. We grow our business over time by having our young talent see how to work, do our work through our leading professionals. And that can't work through work from home. And in general, financial businesses, which of course predominate in New York and other of these large cities, have similar response, less so tech. Jose, do you see any difference by age of interest in coming back or by type of city? Do detail that. And let's please also then turn to Howard for his response on implications for overall tax revenues on who comes back to the city and the vibrancy of the, uh, perhaps the downtown. Let's start with you, Jose. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I think the first thing I should mention is that there is a big gap in how much people say they would like to work from home and how much their employer says that they're going to offer it. So basically the, the average worker says that they want to do it about two days a week. The average employer says they want it, they want their the employee to come into the office most of the time. And so they're only going to end up working from home about one and a half days a week. Can I just stop you there? Because yeah. you, do you actually have specifics? Does the average employer say hundred percent back or one day a week is okay? What, can you be more specific there? Yeah. So kind of when we look at what employers are planning, so there's a big chunk of the population that simply can't do their job from home. They provide in-person services or they work in a manufacturing plant. And so, so that accounts for about 50% of all persons in our data. Then about 15%, a much smaller number, say that their employer is planning for them to be full remote. And about twice as many, about 30%, say that their employer is planning for them to be in some form of hybrid. The most popular form of hybrid is a two, three or three, two, where you're two days at home or three days at home. So that's just to give you an idea. And, and I think, so going back to your Goldman Sachs point, so people want to work from home more than their employer is planning for them. But we also see that kind of the typical person who's going to be working from home is actually not going to be full-time remote. And I think the finance industry and Goldman Sachs have have a point there in that for knowledge workers kind of collaboration and socializing with their colleagues and having conversations that spur innovation and productivity and new ways of doing things is really important. So where I think our research suggests that Goldman Sachs is not necessarily doing the right thing is that it looks like working from home is efficient and that you don't need to be in the office 100% of the time. So kind of I, I absolutely take the point that, that kind of these in-person interactions are very valuable for networking, for apprenticeship type models. I just think that it's going a little bit too far to say that everybody just has to come in because this is the way we've always done it and that's the only way that it's going to work. I think that the past two years correct that perception. We do see some differences in across demographics and how much people wanna work from home. And so, so you asked about the age profile. And so overall, what we find is that people who are kind of in their 30s and 40s wanna do it more often than people in their 20s and in, and in their 50s and up to retirement age. This is partly due to these concerns about kind of learning on the job and having in-person interactions that are a little bit more salient when you're younger than when you're older. I mean, it, it probably also has a little bit to do with kind of routines and, and comfort with technology, which might create a little bit of resistance in the older groups and to work doing working from home more often. But I mean, let me just stop you there because that's a little yeah. counterintuitive. You're finding that the older group, the 50s and older actually want to go back to the office in greater numbers. And, uh, and have you asked why they want to go back? We have asked questions about kind of why people like going to the office or why they're less efficient at home. It sounds like when people want to go to the office, it's two things that they cite are typically collaboration with coworkers and socializing. I think that's salient, especially for young workers, perhaps for older workers, maybe comfort with technology and comfort with the way they've done things for decades relative to just a few years for younger people might also make a difference. That's great. Let me jump in with a, with a follow-up question, which to an issue that, that Jose raised, that's, I think, I'd like to hear Mayor Williams, Tony Williams, and Howard Chernick talk about. So let's say I go back to work on a long-term basis, two days a week. 
I live in New Jersey. I work in New York. Tony mentioned Washington has a, has an income tax. You've got a lot of people who commute from Maryland that has an income tax. When does Maryland say, well, I want those two days that those folks are working in Maryland at home, we want that tax revenue. You've already seen one skirmish between Massachusetts and New Hampshire over that. How do we work out this problem of where the employee's nexus really is? Actually, a little uh, point to be made here, as I'm sure Howard knows, because we don't have any representation editorial, we actually have a lot of our tax base offline, including taxing commuters. So we actually cannot tax Maryland, Virginia residents, citizens who live in D.C., which is the reason why I made the goal of bringing 100,000 people to D.C., because once they live in D.C., regardless of where they work, then we can tax them. Not that I only look at citizens as taxable subjects, but you know what I mean, All right? Sure. This is a big deal between New Jersey yeah. and yeah. Philadelphia. And I think, yeah, I'd be interested to hear what Howard says about that. It is, because it seems like you're arguing the exact opposite from uh, remote sales, right? E-commerce. Yep, yep. Howard, have you come across this issue in your, uh, uh, your school just, research? Just a historical footnote. I worked on a project that was led by DC bar type people on why the District of Columbia should be able to tax some of the income of those lawyers who live in Bethesda. And I thought we made a pretty good case, but alas, the Congress had no interest in this big surprise. Thank you um, for that work, Howard, I appreciate it. I wanna ask one other related question, which uh, comes from a couple of our attendees, in, including uh, Ron Sable from one of the New Jersey transportation unions. I know Tony has thought a lot about this. What's the long-term impact of work from home on mass transportation, which can't really exist without state, local, and federal subsidies? Is the economics of mass transportation are all built around peak load, rush hour fare collection, and we now we have a much more dispersed economy. So what's going to happen to these huge agencies, which are also huge employers and huge tax generators? I'm a big fan of uh, organizations like uh, financial authorities in New York and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. I mean, I wouldn't be in Washington, D.C. without the financial authority coming to the city and restoring some fiscal discipline and order. And I think that to help BART and to help Metro and to help the T, everybody get back on a solid financial footing, maybe some intergovernmental arrangement where everybody comes to the table and gives up something to establish a new model as an order. I mean, labor has to give, employers have to give in terms of ex you know additional excise taxes that may have to go into revitalizing these systems. The federal government is going to be asked to give something, but I think everybody has to ante up at the table. Not just labor, but everybody. And I think we need, in a lot of these systems, this is my own shtick, in a lot of these systems, we need better accountability. We've seen accountability issues over and over and over. We thought we had solved them with Metro. Turns out that the 7,000 series cars that they knew were defective, they didn't tell anybody about it for a year. Track inspections, come on. Again, I'm not trying to sound like a right-wing Republican, but we need accountability and resources together. I just wanted to add a stat to something here because you asked about mass transit and the impact on that. I, just to illustrate how significant the impact on Washington's subway system has been, the metro system, it's a an incredibly commuter-heavy metro system. And what happens on the metro, usually the, there's a very close correlation between ridership and how many people are working downtown, right? So the weekday ridership in August 21 on metro was 21% of what it was in August 2019. And we know that August, that's a kind of a low period anyway. A lot of people are on vacation, but August to August, it was 21% of those levels. So it's, it's a huge impact on Metro. Let me turn back to Howard. Howard, I think uh, you might be well-placed to talk about the pricing model of the Metros and mass transit. They're going to have to change, aren't they? And then I have a follow-up question on the broader tax revenues. Do you have um, any thoughts on the pricing models of the, the, the um, Initially, this is a severe shock, obviously, to mass transit systems. And importantly, the American Rescue Plan has provided a temporary bridge there, fiscal relief. So New York City was able to delay planned uh, fare increases, keep up somewhat with their capital plan. The longer term question, though, is remains very severe. These are 
systems that are built, as the questioner asked, to peak load um, demand. And can we transform them? Very hard because these, again, these are fixed assets and allowing the uh, quality of service or the quality of cars, the frequency to deteriorate increases the vicious cycle. No one knows the answer. I would propose that the states have to increase their subsidy and the federal government make it somewhat permanent on the theory that these assets where even though they're vulnerable now, are long-term assets to the future of metropolitan areas without being too grandiose that are worth keeping, that the cities and states that are unable to respond and allow their mass transit systems to deteriorate, deteriorate, will face even greater risks. And last, I take the mayor's point that there's room for belt tightening, room for efficiency improvements, although uh, people disagree on how much. Howard, let me broaden it out to the vibrancy of downtowns. Over time, downtowns of cities of America have increased in population and overall activity, and therefore, presumably, sales taxes have increased as a share of tax revenue. Do you see this in your data, and do you see sales tax revenue as potentially making up for the office tax, and at the same time, Let's go back to the property tax. Uh, We discussed offline a bit that, and you mentioned, I believe, that 9% rent house price increase would be sufficient to overcome the office losses. Can you speak more to that as well? The sales tax issue depends in part or largely on where people who are not going to the office every day locate. Now, in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, it's pretty booming. And so people, it looks to me without uh, detailed data that people spending in and around the area is maintained. And as Ronnie Lowenstein pointed out in your previous um, session, sales tax revenues are pretty robust. It's not enough since the sales tax is, even in cities with big sales tax, it's really relatively small compared to the property tax. So you need a big offset there. And that's why cities with local income taxes, for one, are doing better. So I gave a rough estimate of a 9% increase in the value of residential property. And your response before was, well, we've already done that because everyone knows that housing prices are soaring, rents are increasing. The political problem, and the mayor could, uh, could respond to this as well, is how do you tax that? New York City, for many years, starting with the post-war, has had a property tax system that deliberately, on, in the law, shifts the burden to non-residential property. Cities around the country, most cities have property tax limitations, levy limits that limit the increase. So to think that a 9% increase, even if that's true on average for most cities, that that could translate into a 9% increase in property tax revenues on that increase in the base is just not going to happen right away. This is going to be a vicious, I predict, I hate to use the word, but a very vigorous political debate. Who bears the cost of this shift in the underlying value of the revenue base of cities? And it's going to be contentious. I couldn't agree with Howard more. I mean, what I've seen in my experience in the financial world is Yes, you basically create these diversions to shelter the residential property tax base. Mm -hmm. And what you do is you diminish the accountability for government spending from the voters who are really the voters and citizens of that jurisdiction, which is not in the long run, I think Howard's saying, and I couldn't agree more healthy. And we're in for some heavy lifting politically, no question. I want to jump in with a related question that we touched on earlier in the discussion on the special briefing. It came from Randy Lehman at S&P Global Ratings. 
my alma mater. He says, I'm curious about tax incentives for economic development and how that changes with remote work. How will governments and companies change formulas for establishing a business nexus for the purpose of taxation and economic development? We talked about the need or the existence of housing subsidies to convert offices, but states and localities spend hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars a year, providing incentives for businesses to move in and bring all those jobs. It's one thing for people who are working on an assembly line or in a, in a fulfillment center where you have to be there to move the goods. It's another thing to be a knowledge worker. Is this going to force a re-examination of business incentive practices? And I'm going to leave that as a, as a jump ball, maybe especially for Tony and Howard, but anybody else who's got a thought on it. Can I interject there for a second? You bet. So actually, my, my understanding is that, at least based on the economics literature, that these business incentive programs that gave big tax breaks to companies to locate in a particular jurisdiction already weren't very effective at all, that it was basically a race to the bottom. The entire surplus was accrued by the business and not the jurisdictions were basically just losing out on tax revenue by competing against each other. So this is based on, on a paper by one of my Stanford classmates when I was in my PhD. Uh, his name is Evan Mast. Yeah, my guess is that we need to rethink these policies, and in particular for knowledge workers, it, it, as you said, it, I think it just really doesn't make sense. What we see in the data is precisely that workers in, in the densest population or who used to live in 2019 in, in the densest locations are the most likely to be working from home, at least part of the time. So I think it, it makes a lot more sense for cities to invest in amenities, in kind of attracting these knowledge workers for other reasons than to try to give these tax breaks to businesses that really weren't ultimately having a huge effect. I'm really happy, Jose. Can I just add to that? Because I'm really happy you brought that up because just in the district, and I would love to hear what the mayor has to say about this too. But you know, a few years ago, the district did an audit of one of its kind of splashiest economic incentives programs. It's for tech companies, basically. It was established by the council some years ago to draw what they called, you know, high, basically any kind of high tech employers to the district. A study found that it was really ineffective, or at least I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that it was really ineffective. I should say that they weren't able to draw any conclusions about how effective that it was because it was so poorly tracked, because the city was, it was tracking very poorly what they were actually getting out of that $40 million in foregone revenue for these incentives. So I think that it's going to create political pressure on city leaders to start looking at those incentives a lot more closely because they were already under the microscope. So I thought that was a really great point. So, Ali and Jose, just to respond overall to the general discussion, you're probably aware, Jose, of the research which shows that the tremendous shift of college-educated young people to cities has been ascribed to downtown amenities, and it's been done by our own Jessica Hanbury of the Wharton School Real Estate Department. The 2020-10 data show that, and the 2010-2020 seem to reconfirm the importance. So the question is, Yes, clearly the amenities, bringing people downtown is the answer that everyone seems to be turning towards. Is that going to be possible? Maybe we can start with you, Ali. What do you see now? Are people coming back? Do we see new vibrancy in the city? Not as much as I think some of the downtown business improvement districts were really hoping. Economic activity over the course of last year definitely rebounded a little bit, but there was no, I think that some economic development officials were really looking forward to you know, especially after the vaccines came out, they were looking forward to a July 4th pop. They were looking forward to a Labor Day pop in 21. Neither of those things happened. I think that it's been because of this perception that downtown is just a dead zone. I think that kind of is self-reinforcing. So it's, as the mayor was, was saying, I think that cities are going to increasingly be under pressure to start looking at how they can just bring more bodies downtown, bring more people walking around and spending money at those businesses. But I also can't think of a way that you, that you can incentivize out of this because the change in behavior among workers is just so significant and employers are going to have to compete with each other to retain those workers. And if you don't allow some flexibility for people to work from home as they wish, you're going to lose. There, do you have- no, I'm comments? talking about incentivizing people to live in the city, not employers to come and, or incentivizing people to work in the city. There's a difference. So how do we incentivize people to- live in the cities? What do you see as our best way forward, Mayor? The way I look at it is if I'm a knowledge worker, I can work from home in Washington, D.C., where I can walk over to free museums or I can work from home out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, I would rather 
work from home in a city with all kinds of amenities that can be provided. So I'm talking about incentivizing situations to attract those residents, Allie, not businesses to come to the city. Although there's an argument that as long as you're not breaking the bank, in my view, you're not spending a lot. I'll put it this way, and I don't want to take up all the time. When mayors ask me, what's the most important thing I can do to incentivize business in my city, as I say, establish settled expectations. Just establish settled expectations in a competitive climate, right? Don't provide any surprises and businesses will come. You don't have to provide all these expectations. And, and if I may, Mayor, I, bring, I agree with Jose on that, yeah. And to bring back the talent, bring back the young right, people right. and all ages who want to be yep. in the city, yep. because the city is, you can work from anywhere, why not your city with vibrant downtown? Yeah. If I could just jump in with a very quick comment, I don't want to be a downer, but there's a famous book by uh, <laughs> late great Dick Netzer called The Arts, The Subsidized Muse. So the, to the extent that cultural activities are an important part of the amenity, cultural activities have never been able to turn a profit except for maybe the, the musical Les Mis. So again, like the mass transit, it's an activity that's important, but that requires, and I think justifiably, public subsidies. So we've kind of listed already a set of housing conversion, mass transit, cultural activities that don't cover their costs. So where the money is going to come from is a formidable issue. Where the money is going to come from is where the talent is, and bringing back the talent is what it's about and bringing back cities. Thank you very much. I'm going to turn to close back to Bill. Well, thank you. Very, very well put, Susan. And that's the, I said at the beginning, we wouldn't have all the answers, but we'd sure raise the issues. And we've certainly raised a lot of issues today on this special briefing. We've been tuned into special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.